Uh, today we have a special podcast and uh, we are streaming on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram right now. Um, today's discussion is titled, Why We Sued the Department of Labor. My um, guests today are Wilson Freeman from Pacific Legal Foundation and Kim Cavan from Fight for Freelancers. And welcome, Wilson and Kim. Thanks, Steve. Great to see you again, Steve. So um, thank you, everybody, for joining us in all the live chats. I'm trying to keep a little bit of, I mean, most of it I'll see come through. Just no Instagram people not avoiding you. They just haven't integrated the the chat feature yet. So I can't see anything you're writing, but I'm trying to watch on a little phone here in case you guys have a comment. I will do my best. Um, but we will have people from all over the country listening. So let's just get right into it. Um, since we have Wilson here, Wilson, why don't we, can we start off today by going through the lawsuit itself? Sure, Steve. So as you mentioned, I'm with the Pacific Legal Foundation. We filed a lawsuit challenging the new Department of Labor rule, which uh, was finalized in early January of this year. Uh, the rule establishes the uh, scope for the department's interpretation of who is an employee and who is an independent contractor under the major federal labor law, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, we challenge, we're challenging this interpretation as contrary to the statute and as promulgated arbitrarily uh, and as contrary to the Constitution. So we're hoping to have that rule set aside. And I can talk more about the details of the challenge uh, if you'd like. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I would like our audience to know because, I mean, I've, we talked, we've had a, a handful of discussions about this. I've been making even the gig app community aware because, um, and just to hit on this real quick, there are, many are convinced this can't affect them. And I've had to say that, you know, how do you know? We've never been here before. <laughs> and uh, and honestly, I mean, you know, we are independent contractors in the eyes of the app. So I don't see how it potentially couldn't hurt us. I mean, I think it definitely affects, uh, it definitely affects so-called gig workers. It affects my clients. My clients are uh, four freelance writers, including Kim, who's on the call as uh, one of the plaintiffs in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, so what you, what you and, and your listeners need to understand about the Fair Labor Standards Act is that it applies to every uh, worker in the country. Uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act says that if you're an employee, any employee, uh, that a, the your employer needs to pay you minimum wage and overtime and track your hours for the hours worked, among other things. Mm -hmm. So independent contractors, of course, it's just anybody who's working, who's essentially anybody who's not an employee, is an independent contractor. You don't have to pay independent contractors minimum wage. You don't have to pay them overtime. So right now, uh, if you're an independent contractor under the Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, there's no need for, if you're, for example, driving for Uber, if you're one of my clients, you're a freelance writer working for a magazine, the magazine doesn't need to track how long you're working. Uh, or, you know, Uber doesn't need to track how long you're working. Uh, they don't need to divide your hours up if you're driving for Uber and Lyft, for example. Uh, they just, you just need to know that, you know, you're just getting paid in your case on like a, a piece rate, a drive rate type thing. But if you were an employee, you would have to get paid, uh, you know, you'd have to, they would have to track your hours because that you have to be making a minimum wage and minimum wage is generally speaking calculated on a, on a per hour basis. So this rule is very important because what this rule does uh, is it sets out the scope for determining who's an employee 
under the act. And as I just mentioned, if you're an employee, you're going to be subject to these sort of very uh, demanding requirements for your employer. Uh, so that that goes to the question of, well, look, I mean, you know, I get a 1099. I call myself an independent contractor. I therefore, what's the big deal? Well, that's not the way the Department of Labor looks at the question. The Department of Labor says, this is, uh, you know, whether you're an employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act has absolutely nothing to do with what you call yourself. It has nothing to do with whether you get a 1099. It has to do with the so-called economic realities of your situation and your bespoke situation, whatever that may be. So that means that for any given worker uh, in any given profession, you know, whether or not they're an employee is a question that you know, that really has to be answered uh, if you want, if you're, if you want to work with them as an employer or as a client, in the case of an independent contractor, you have to have some sort of certainty about whether or not they're an employee or not, because otherwise you could be stuck, uh, you know, not paying them overtime and then getting on the hook with a lawsuit later or a Department of Labor investigation later. You don't want to be in that situation. So at the end, so this is all background. At the end of 2021, or at the beginning of 2021, at the end of the Trump administration, uh, the administration promulgated a rule setting out uh, the scope for who's an employee and who's an independent contractor under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that rule set forth what we see as a pretty clear test. And under that rule, if you, as a worker, exercise control over the way that you do your work, if, if you have control, and if you have an opportunity to make profit, so in the case of a driver, if you have the opportunity, you know, to, to drive more efficiently or the way that you drive or the way that you sort of manage your day to day, you know, if you have those two things, generally speaking, you're going to be an independent contractor. And that gave in, uh, companies that work with independent contractors a lot of certainty and a lot of comfort so that they could be comfortable hiring independent contractors and knowing hey, I don't have to worry about the Department of Labor coming after me later or about disgruntled workers filing a lawsuit against me later for uh, failed lack, lack of overtime pay. So that, that was a really important rule. Well, needless to say, you know, when the new administration got in, the first thing they did was with, try to withdraw that rule. That withdrawal was struck down by a court. A court said, you can't just withdraw this rule for no reason. You have to give a very reasoned explanation as to why you're going to take it out. So... That brings us to the present day. The Department of Labor has now put out their so-called reasoned explanation. They've withdrawn this 2021 rule, which gave companies a lot of certainty, and put in this new rule. And this new rule is much more open-ended, and we characterize it in our lawsuit as being unconstitutionally vague, and I think that it is. The new rule is a six or maybe seven-factor test, which looks at a bunch of different things to determine whether or not a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. But none of those factors, whether it be, again, control is one of the factors, degree of permanency of the working relationship is another factor. So in the case of a rideshare worker, if you're driving for Uber all the time, that's a very permanent relationship. Uh, the amount of skill that you have to, to do your job is one of these factors. Uh, the importance of your job to the business of the company you're working with, the so-called integral nature of your job, that's another factor. So they have all these factors. They then have a seventh factor, which is a catch-all. It just says anything we forgot to mention could also be important to this question. The Department of Labor doesn't say how those factors are going to be weighed. They don't tell you what facts are important. 
They just say, here are some factors which you have, which we're going to consider when we determine whether you are an independent contractor or not. But, you know, we're not going to tell you how to weigh them. It's a totality of the circumstances test. It's a bespoke analysis, which for every different worker could be totally different. And that's all you, that's all you get. That's all you, that's all we're going to let you know. And then now that's the rule. So, or that will be the rule in March when this rule goes into effect. This is really important to independent contractors and to freelance writers like my clients who, who have been working as independent contractors for a long time. Their mm -hmm. customers need to know what the rules are in order to be able to do business. The Department of Labor saying that, uh, you know, here's a six or seven factor test and we're not going to tell you how to weigh any of these factors. It gives my clients absolutely no certainty, no way to know what the rules are that apply to their relationship. And it threatens their business because future customers are going to be chilled by this new rule. And so this is, I think this is something that, yeah, independent contractors do need to worry about. Many of them are worried about it. Most of the, almost all of the comments from independent contractors on the rule opposed it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the Department of Labor enacted the rule anyway, ostensibly to protect those same independent contractors. So that's where we stand. As I said, we've challenged the rule. I can talk, you know, I can talk endlessly about this. So I apologize if I just- No, don't. no, I just, I mean, like for one thing I would like to know is I'm confused about like the legality of passing this rule. I mean, Julie, when, when um, Julie Sue was putting the acting position in March of last year, she was supposed to have what, 220 days to be confirmed? <laughs> So that would have been September, right? Well, we in didn't September, challenge that didn't happen. And here we are in the second 118th Congress and she's still there. I do not understand. Well, we didn't bring an appointments clause challenge here. I mean, I think that might be problematic. It's just not the focus of our lawsuit, though. Uh, we haven't we've chosen to focus instead on the flaws that we see in the rule itself rather sure, than sure. Sort of the procedural errors in terms of who's enacting it. And uh, whether Julie Sue can appropriately sign that or not, that's just not a focus of our lawsuit. So I haven't developed a detailed opinion on it, but I can I see guess I just see it as, sure. the you know, the Biden administration tried to push the PRO Act. And mm -hmm. Kim and I have talked about this at length and they tried to shove it through in pieces because that didn't work. And they tried this, that, the other. And now it's here we are in potentially the last nine, you know, year of his his stay and he just keeps somebody who's still not passed in this gets passed i feel like you know like she i mean what do you you have to go back over 100 years if the if the president who's controlling the office and the congress is held by the same party they've had, you have to go back 100 years to find somebody who can't get confirmed <laughs> i mean i and so their own party can't confirm her it's surprising but what you need to what you need to realize is the department of labor here they're, I think they're operating kind of within a reasonable understanding of, of what it is they're, the, they're interpreting the Fair Labor Standards Act, or they, so they say they are. They're not, and that's something they did in the Trump administration. The question is whether they can turn that interpretation on a dime, which is what they've done. They've essentially turned from one understanding of the Fair Labor Standards Act Again, this is a statute that's been around since 1938. This is this is not a new law. This is the minimum wage law for the for the country, for the, the federal minimum wage law for this country. It's been in place for many, many years. The question is whether the Department of Labor can change its understanding of that law, change the scope of that law and who it applies to 
on a dime and create a new standard for that law, which is Mm -hmm. so ambiguous that individual workers, ordinary people who have to be able to understand this law. I mean, you you know, your listeners, driver, Uber drivers, my clients, freelance writers, I mean, they need to know what are, are they putting their clients and customers at risk by working for them in the case of my clients and their customers are going to want to know that. But how can they, when you look at this rule, when you look at this six, seven factor balancing test where no one factor is given any prominence and the Department of Labor refuses to answer any questions about who's going to be covered or not. I think that creates a real problem for workers all across the economy. You know, regardless of the sort of appointments clause question, it's just it, it's just outside of the department's authority. Yeah, I I've worked for a laser comp- production company since the late '90s. Um, I worked as a salary position for them for a couple years, and then I came back to Colorado, and um, now I just do all freelance stuff. I've worked for lighting companies, sound companies, pyrotechnic companies. I've done world tours. I've done, I mean, I don't see how my life wouldn't be just destroyed by this. If it's an, if it's enacted and pushed. Right. I mean, the rule, you know, the rule is, is going to go into effect, but the way the department of labor has crafted this rule, I think is, is very clever because what it does is it, it chills relationships. We, you've probably talked on your show about the ABC test and, and AB five quite a bit. I, Uh, But under the AB5 test, generally speaking, independent contractor relationships are really hard to to create and to make legal. And so usually, uh, you know, accepting whatever the exceptions are to AB5, you know that if you're in California, you're not you're going to be an employee. You're not going to be able to classify yourself as an independent contractor under California labor law. This law is a little different. Right. What this law does is this law says. You might be an independent contractor. You might not be. I don't, I, the Department of Labor, can't tell you, and I'm not going to tell you. But if you hire independent contractors as a business, you're taking your life into your hands because you don't know whether the people that you're working with are independent contractors. The only way you can, you can try at your best to guess at it by looking at these seven factors that we've given you and trying to to read the tea leaves and guess, but you don't really know. And there's no way for you to know. The problem with that, one of the major problems with that, which we see, is it accrues to the Department of Labor, to bureaucrats in Washington, enormous authority to post hoc decide that certain workers should have been classified employees were misclassified as independent contractors and almost like on a case-by-case basis on a case-by-case basis absolutely and in an in a way that would seem to ordinary people to be inconsistent this creates a this is this is what i would call a separation of powers problem i mean it it puts the department of labor in the position of wielding a sword of damocles which it can drop on the heads of unsuspecting businesses that it doesn't like and then cite to this rule which is so vague that nobody can tell what the proper reading of it is or what the proper scope is and say, well, you know, we're just following our rule. And uh, that's just not fair. That's not the rule of law as I understand it. And so to me, that's the major problem here. So there's a couple of things here. <clears throat> I see John Lopez. John's in Chicago. He said the withdrawal of the 2021 Trump um, administration rule was or or back was struck down 
Is this correct? Yeah, I believe I said that. That's right. So the Department of Labor, okay. the very first thing they did uh, under the new administration is they withdrew uh, the 2021 Trump rule in, uh, you know, in, in a short, essentially a short, quick withdrawal rule. Uh, right. Texas, but he's, I think here he's saying that in an East Texas federal court, it was... Right. I'm, I'm getting that. That's right. Okay, then that's okay. that withdrawal rule was itself challenged in federal court in Texas and the Texas court struck it down. So we've been living with the so-called Trump rule or the 2021 rule here now for for three years. I mean, it's been the law of the land and uh, the sort of the parade of horribles that the Department of Labor trots out in its rule to justify withdrawing this 2021 rule that hasn't come to pass. And I don't anticipate uh, the, the Department of Labor says, well, we have to do this rule because otherwise there will be hordes of exploited independent contractors and we'll be powerless to stop it. And that's just not the case. Uh, the the mm -hmm. rule at under the, tr the Trump rule gave, gave businesses guidance. It told them what the rules are, but it didn't give them sort of unlimited carte blanche to classify workers as independent contractors and to not pay the minimum wage. That's not what it did. So I think that's that's been proven over the past three years. Steve, Steve they're trying again is what's happening. They they tried once. The court stopped them. They're trying again. That's And now we're trying to stop them. Does that make well, sense? That yeah, this is another attempt. To, but the difference between this and the withdrawal rule that was struck down is this is a new they putting in place a new rule. The withdrawal mm -hmm. rule in 2021 was struck down because the Department of Labor ostensibly didn't follow the procedures it was supposed to follow. Right. When you withdraw a rule, you have to go through this process. It's called notice and comment. And it's a lengthy process. And you have to give a very reasoned explanation as to why you're changing your policy. So now here we are, you know, three years down the road, the Department of Labor has got, now gone through this procedural process that the Texas court previously found fault with. They've issued their so-called reasoned explanation. But I think, as we explain in our lawsuit, the, the so-called reasoned explanation that they've adopted is still wholly inadequate. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Karen Anderson here is asking... I, and Karen's a good friend of, of Kim and mine, but uh, she's out in California. She has been um, absolutely devastated by AB5. And she says, how does a freelance editor of a monthly newsletter not fail at least three factors of the six-factor test or a weekly column columnist? Well, I mean, what's interesting about this rule is without, <laughs> I mean, obviously without more facts, you know, it's, it's you even with more facts, you can't ever say, looking at this rule, whether a particular situation is going to be classified as an employer or an independent contractor. You can run through those six factors. Yeah. You can say, oh, I'm going to fail three of those factors. But what the Department of Labor is going to say and what they say in their rule is these factors can't be considered in isolation or even in combination. The only way to consider the factors is specific to a particular factual circumstance, considering the totality of the circumstances in an unspecified manner, you know, we'll be able to try and guess at whether you're an independent contractor after having looked at all the facts. But that's mm -hmm. no rule at all. That's, that's the I know it when I see a test. The Department mm -hmm. of Labor has simply adopted and I know it when I see a test. I know an independent contracting relationship when I see it. I, I have these six or seven factors, but 
they're not they're not binding on me. I can look at anything I want, and I don't have to tell you how I'm going to balance them. So, you know, really, what this is is I'm going to look at a relationship and know it when I see it, if it's an employment relationship or not. And unfortunately, that doesn't give stakeholders, contractors, and customers who use contractors the guidance they need to be able to hire contractors without fear. Uh, and yeah, that's what exactly. this is about. I mean, that's when you we're talking about AB5, we've talked to Karen many times about how overnight they became toxic, mm -hmm. all the yep. workers. And I, so one question I would have for you, is this six fact, I mean, neither are good at all, but is the six, can you look at the six factor test as it could be worse? It could be the ABC test because that B prong on the ABC test was just right. And I think, I think there's a way to think about it. And I said that a moment ago, right? I, if you're in California, you know, generally speaking, it's very hard to be classified as an independent contractor, especially if you're doing something like, uh, like Karen mentioned in her comment, writing magazine articles for a magazine, because you're going to fail the B prong. Uh, here, the Department of Labor has cre hasn't said that those people are employees. They've said, we don't know. <laughs> They've said, we have, it's one of the factors and we'll consider it alongside all of the other factors. Uh, so you could say, well, this is better than ABC because there's a chance that that person can keep working as an independent contractor. And in fact, I think that the result of the rule is, of course, going to be a chilling of independent contractor relationships, but I don't expect them to dry up completely overnight um, mm -hmm. because the Department of Labor has left enough doubt that businesses can just decide to take the risk. And many of them, I think, will decide to take the risk. Some will not, and that's what's going to hurt businesses like my clients, but some will decide to take the chance uh, and bet against a Department of Labor enforcement action or bet that if one is brought, they can fight and win on, on the six or seven factor test. The problem with that, as I mentioned a moment ago, is that the amount of uncertainty created is in and of itself a bad thing for businesses. And it's a bad thing for the rule of law, for the Department of Labor to accrue to itself the power to go after businesses it doesn't like which is ultimately mm -hmm. what they can do under this new rule. And businesses who don't know the rules, now they have to adopt a risk premium. And, you know, is that better than just not being able to use independent contractors at all? Maybe you could say that it is, but I think for purposes of the rule of law and certainty and freedom of contracting, I think it's, it is in some ways better to have a clear rule uh, which tells individuals what is expected of them. Whereas here we have a rule which tells individuals that the Department of Labor is just going to be in a position to only tell what's expected of you after the fact. Plus, won't they be in a position where to really, I mean, like you said, it'll take a while for people to even know this happened. It's kind of like maybe mm -hmm. five happened, people don't know. So won't yeah. they have to go after, won't they actually have to get aggressive with some people to prove mm -hmm. that this is serious? Yeah, I think that I, I mean, I, I don't want to look too hard in my crystal ball. That's not my job. And that's not, I understand. I understand. I'll, I'll do, I'll, I'll speculate a little bit that, that, that I think the next, if, when this rule goes into effect, yes, the Department of Labor then has to bring enforcement actions to apply the rule and to show how they're going to use it in practice in some degree. And because the uncertainty of the rule is so great. You know, I, I think that that will lead to additional litigation. Now, it's worth noting as well that 
the Fair Labor Standards Act, of course, can be enforced by private lawsuits. So private individuals are likely to bring more lawsuits as a result of this rule. I think it's uh, it's likely to kick off a wave of FLSA litigation uh, against employers on behalf of uh, disgruntled former independent contractors who feel like they should have been paid overtime. So I, I think uh, I think that's yeah, I think that is going to be a consequence of the rule. I think there will be a lengthy adjustment period because of the nature of the rule itself, the amount of uncertainty it creates. But I also feel like as long as this rule's in place, we're not going to settle in to, you know, an equilibrium where people sort of understand what the rules are, because the rule is inherently uncertain. I think we're sort of heading into a world of, of profound uncertainty in terms of the scope of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Yes, I think I think unions will bring lawsuits. I think individuals will bring law. I mean, I think uh, it's going to be a bonanza potentially uh, because the standard has been loosened so much from uh, from what it was in in 2021, and even to some degree what it was before 2021, when you just would have been able to look to the the court. Here, the Department of Labor has said, you know, don't look to the courts. Look to our extremely vague, uh, broad rule. So. I'm not sure how long we have you for. So Kim and I will be, I, I want to go with Kim through some of this stuff, but as of March, just question, I know again, it's a little speculation, but as of March 11th, what do you expect? Well, our lawsuit, uh, whether our, I don't know that our lawsuit will be able to get the rule set aside by that date. You know, we'll just have to see at this point for our lawsuit, we filed our complaint. We filed it as soon as we could within days of the rule coming down. But, you know, the government has to respond and there has to be a sort of litigation process. So the rule will go into, will probably go into effect on, you know, in, in, in March is scheduled. So what's going to happen at that point? I mean, at that point, I think we head into a world of uncertainty. I think that the nature of the standard is so nebulous that independent contractors can probably keep doing business as long as their clients want to. But I think that the clients are going to start being chilled. I think the business is going to dry up a little bit. And I think as the lawsuits proliferate and the Department of Labor's enforcement actions proliferate under this new standard, I think we'll see a sort of gradual shrinking of the independent contractor sector. And that's the Department of Labor's goal. I mean, I think that they're very explicit about that is they want to reduce the number of independent contractors and make more people into employees. But if I'm correct, I mean, from many people I talked to, the number differentiates from 63, 65 million, 68 million. I've heard upward of 70 plus mm-hmm. million independent contractors. That's 40% of the workforce. Yeah. And we know, I mean, I, I bet my farm on it. Right. I know then, that they can't even produce 10% of those jobs. They can't make 7 million jobs if they kill these- 70. These jobs are not going away overnight. What the Department of Labor is seeking to do is to give itself this power, this sort of Damocles, that it can bring down the hammer against businesses and companies and business models that it doesn't like, and to do what it can to chill this industry from growing any further. But I think it's, I think it's like you said, for, for all the reasons you explained, I, I, I think it's difficult to see the independent contractor in American life going away. I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think that the Department of Labor necessarily intends for it to completely go away. Their rule 
is designed to create uncertainty. It's designed to chill, to create fear around the process of hiring an independent contractor. And it does that very effectively. But unlike AB5, as I've mentioned several times, the rule doesn't prohibit people from effectively prohibit people from being independent contractors. It just for their customers, it creates legal risk. And it just leaves a looming. That's right. That's right. Hey, we we might take you. Who knows? Yeah, we might pick you. We might go after you. We might not. You know, your employ your your independent contractors. If they get disgruntled, they might come after you. You know, maybe a you know you you just have to. It creates this uncertainty. Uh, the Department of Labor is, like I said, they're hostile to independent contracting. The rule was supported here, as the Department of Labor's comments admit. Uh, or admit about the comments. The rule was supported here by quote unquote workers advocacy groups and labor unions, essentially the same thing. Uh, you know, these organizations are definitely hostile to the freelance business model and people being their own boss. And I think that's ultimately, you know, this is about, this is one front on the battle that Kim is fighting. You know, it's not the whole battle, right? The Department of Labor uh, isn't able to prohibit independent contracting overnight. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but it's certainly a threat to businesses like Kim's. And uh, that's why we're trying to uh, stop it because as I said, it's, it's illegal and unconstitutional. And there's no exemptions, right, Wilson? Like what a lot of what we talk about with AB5 was that they ultimately exempted more than 100 professions, but that ain't happening here, right? Well, of course not. The Fair, yeah, the Fair Labor Standards Act, as I mentioned at the very beginning, applies to every employee and every worker in the country. If you're a worker, uh, you know, you have to, well, you don't have to worry, but the company that pays you has to worry about whether or not you're an employee or whether you're an independent contractor. And uh, this is, this is universal. So there are no exceptions in the Fair Labor Standards Act to this. Obviously, there are exempt employees from, from overtime and the like, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh, no one's really exempt from the minimum wage, generally, with the exception of sort of narrow exemptions like peace rate and stuff. But well, I was, uh, was going to also say like, like you, like who's going to, who's going to challenge a lawyer? Well, right. <laughs> I mean, there's no real question. There's no real question that I'm paid the minimum wage, I guess. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, these enforcement actions that get brought there, it's hard to see a pattern. And I think in the future, it's going to be even harder to sort of predict whether or not a particular job under the Department of Labor's test is covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that's the intent. Uh, the intent. You don't think that as, will precedence be set? Will it be used? Like if of five course, writers get in yeah. there, will they? I think precedence what? will be set. But the way the Department of Labor's rule is structured is such that those precedents are inherently bespoke, right? I mean, the Department of Labor is very clear in their rule that everything is a totality of the circumstances test. And even if in a given case, a freelance writer was an independent contractor, for example, or a freelance and or freelance or another writer was classified as an employee. You have to look at the circumstances of that particular case, and we can weigh the factors differently in that particular case. So I agree. Yes, of course, precedents will be set. I mentioned this is going to create litigation. I think that's the inevitable result. Uh, but that's just not the way that this works. That's not the way it should work. The Fair Labor Standards Act has can give people certainty people should know 
when they're entering into a contract, what the rules are of that contract. They shouldn't have to guess. They shouldn't have to engage in a detailed lawyerly and scholarly analysis of the precedents to try and figure out whether or not this relationship is an independent contracting relationship. They should just be able to, the person of ordinary intelligence should just be able to know because it's important. We're talking about criminal penalties here. If you're an employer that works with somebody and you've misclassified them as an independent contractor, I mean, you could potentially be on the hook for major penalties. And so how can it be that the, that the Department of Labor says, well, it may be that you could be on the hook for major penalties, but the only way to figure out whether the workers that you've hired are employees is to undertake this detailed seven-factor balancing test. That just can't be the rule because people of ordinary intelligence can't apply that. Uh, so you're right, there will be precedents set, but is that really going to suffice to give workers the certainty that they need and give businesses the certainty they need to, to continue doing business. Again, my understanding of freedom of contract is that if Kim wants to be an independent contractor and the magazine that she works with wants to hire an independent contractor, mm -hmm. they should be able to set up their relationship so that she's an independent contractor, whatever that 100%. right? But the Department of Labor won't tell them what that has to look like. That can't be lawful. That's that, In my view, that's unlawful. It runs contrary to the Fair Labor Standards Act runs contrary to the Constitution. I think some of the underlining stuff you've been saying, even what I'm hearing is this is really being thrown out there as a major scare tactic to the to the companies that potentially would hire Kim. Yeah. Instead of the Kims who understand it and go, no, no, I know what I'm doing. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the Fair Labor Standards Act, Kim is not going to be penalized, right? I mean, she's generally except through her business being destroyed. But Except through my yeah, I was just going to say her livelihood but that, alone, but but okay. that I spent 20 years building. Right. That's, a very important, that's a very important concept. I'm not trying to understate it, but it's not the case that you're going to pay damages. The people who pay damages for, mis, for quote unquote misclassifying you are, the, are your customers. And that's why, that's how this rule operates. It doesn't, it goes after the clients, the customers and uh, of independent contractors and tells them. If you're going to hire an independent contractor, you're going to take your life into your hands. You're taking on a legal risk. And, you know, we could sue you or down the road, your former workers could sue you. So you better be careful. And uh, to me, while some legal risk is, of course, inherent, there have to be able to businesses have to be able to know how to set up their relationships. And in my view, the Fair Labor Standards Act which is this federal labor law that we're talking about here, it gives, it has sufficient clarity. It tells you that employees are one category of people and, uh, and businesses should be able to know who's an employee and who's not. Otherwise, what's the purpose of the law? It just might as well say the Department of Labor can bring an enforcement action against anybody they don't like. Yeah. Yeah, and what's, and, and what's you know, if you have this great concept and this rule goes in place. And after March 11th, you want to start a new business. Now you really got to weigh it. Mm -hmm. I Wait a minute. Yeah. If you are, if you're thinking about going into business as an independent contractor, I'm not going to discourage you because I think that's great. You want to be yeah. your own boss. You should do that. But you need to understand that there is a, that there the rules like this one pose a threat to 
the continued stability of the freelance business model because there it it goes after your potential customers it says that you know if your potential customers want to work with you there's going to be a certain amount of legal risk associated with that and that's not your fault but it's something that you should be aware of as somebody trying to run your own business so Karen's saying the DOL claims it would only it could it would only take right. <laughs> an hour. Well, look, I mean, you know, it's longer than the first Harry Potter book. Can you read right. that? Right. You can determine. <laughs> it depends what you mean by determine if somebody's a worker, Karen, right? I mean, ultimately, if they're, uh, you know, if you just want to take a guess, you could take a guess in five seconds. But in terms of, uh, in terms of actually determining whether someone's a worker, I, I completely disagree with that. The Department of Labor is just, they're just saying how long it takes to read the rule. But they'll tell you, you can never determine in advance whether somebody's a worker or an independent contractor. You can't determine that without looking at the totality of the circumstances. And those circumstances could include things that you don't even know about. And the only way that, that we can actually determine whether you're an employee is really to ask a judge. You know, the judge interpreting the law and interpreting this rule is the only person who can make that decision. That just can't be can't be the way that this should work. Wilson, one other question I've been getting, and I'm assuming Steve too, because of who his audience is, a lot of these are the folks who fought for Prop 22 out mm -hmm. in California. Mm -hmm. And the question I keep seeing floating around online is what, if any effect does this have with regard to Prop 22? People seem a little confused about that. Well, look, I, I'm not a California labor lawyer, so I don't want to get too much into the weeds about AB5 and, and and Prop 22 and the interaction between those and what's going on in the AB5 and Prop 22 litigations. So without getting into that, I will say the Fair Labor Standards Act applies to every worker in the country. Okay, If you are a worker and if you're classified as an employee, that means your boss is an employer and they have to pay minimum wage and overtime. They have to be tracking your hours for purposes of knowing whether you're owed minimum wage and overtime, unless you're, you know, an exempt employee, blah, 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 blah. That applies to you regardless of whether you're exempt from AB5 or not. They, they just, the, the laws don't talk to each other. They have nothing to do with each other. If you are an employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act, then you're covered by, then you, your boss has to worry about the FLSA with re respect to you. It has nothing to do with whether or not you would be exempt from AB5 as a result of Prop 22. So and even so, if you fought for an exemption in California and you got an exemption from AB5, whether right. through the exemption process or through Prop 22, that is it's irrelevant a, to what's happening here. Right. It's just a completely different. It has nothing to do with this, right? Ultimately, if but you the want, way you're saying it, they would go after Uber, Lyft, Instacart. That's right. Yes. DoorDash. Well, labor would, yes. So the question is, I mean, the the, the big question is going to be, and we don't know the, I don't know the answer to this. I don't work for Uber. I don't work for these gig companies. I have no idea. So, but the big question is going to be, you know, is this rule going to chill or change the way that gig companies do business because they are afraid of the Department of Labor coming after them? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. are they going to want to classify workers as, as employees or are they just going to change the way that they interact with those workers so as they their lawyers think that they can win a litigation on this new test, right? Because ultimately, like, the test creates so much uncertainty that if, if you're an attorney for Uber, 
you're going to look at it and you're going to say, okay, well, we can probably still continue working with, with drivers, but as independent contractors, but we need to be careful and we need to be very aware that there may be actions brought against us. And this new rule creates a lot of uncertainty. It's just, it's a trial, it's a trial lawyers full employment act. I think somebody said mm -hmm. in the comments earlier, I mean, honestly, like, I, I think that the, the impact is going to be a lot of litigation for big gig companies. But what what is the how is it ultimately going to play out? I and mean, that's going to take years to figure out. And I just well, can't and we pay. and it's not just Prop 22. We have the Washington state slash Seattle pay up legislation for gig workers. We have the New York City new legislation, which says 50 cents a minute on right. active time. But they say they won't optimize you more than 65 percent of, of an hour. So you can expect to earn 18 an hour. This is a multi-front war against independent contractors, right? Yeah. There's so many different laws that are trying because as Kim, I'm sure has talked about and we'll talk about, I mean, this is a major priority for certain advocacy groups, particularly labor unions to crack down on this kind of freelance work. But, you know, and, and the, the Department of Labor's rule is one front in that war and we're challenging it because we think it creates this uncertainty without, you know, any sort of useful or uh, lawful justification. Uh, but I don't mean to say that, that this rule alone is the only thing you need to worry about if you're trying to run your own business and be a freelance worker. I think there's all sorts of rules that are that are coming out there which are going to add legal risk to your business. Uh, this is just one of those rules. So yeah. you just should be aware. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think that this rule is is important, uh, and it, because it covers everybody, because it covers all workers, even if you might think that you're exempt for maybe five, you're still going to be covered by this rule. But it uh, it won't uh, in terms of how it's going to play out. It's so hard to predict, and because it's in this changing system with all these state laws and all these these lawsuits that are proceeding, not just ours, but of course I mentioned the EB-5 lawsuit and there's the Prop 22 lawsuit and and it's just too big a topic to go into detail right oh, now, yeah. but, but yeah. ultimately it's- uh, But, at the, but the, at the end of the day, if they want it to, the federal overrides it. Well, no. The, so the Fair Labor <laughs> Standards Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act- This is why I have brought a lawyer, Steve. <laughs> provides a floor for regulation, okay? So what that means is that the states, generally speaking, can always go beyond whatever the FLSA provides. So so if you are, so let's say that, it, that your case gets litigated, right? You're a, you're a freelance, you're a driver in California or something. The Department of Labor goes after your employer and says that you should, or your, the company you work for and says you should have been classified as an employee. You know, if you win, and it's determined under the FLSA that you are correctly classified as an independent contractor, that doesn't override the state's determination later, or on, let's say if, if Prop 22 got struck down, it wouldn't override the state's determination that you're an employee. It would just mean under these two different laws, which operate in parallel, uh, that, that you would be a, an independent contractor for purposes of one law and an employee for purposes of the other. It's very confusing. It's very annoying. It's very confusing. It's why you could be, <laughs> you get a 1099 
that's then you, your employer lists you as an independent contractor on all of his forms. And it just says it's just not relevant at all for purposes right. of the FLSA. It's just a it's just a different law. It's a very important law. It, it might be the most important law, but it only provides a floor. It doesn't override and will almost never override whatever the state's regulation is if that regulation is more restrictive. So 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 even- when but when like John's here says the U.S. DOL rule change um, through Fair Labor Standards Act will, you know, left uh, Lorena Gonzalez, who we all have a laugh about. It provides a floor, right? Okay. So the Department of Labor can always. So if the so, for example, if if uh, this isn't an ABC test, as I've said several times, but but AB five has all these exemptions. Uh, we've talked about those a bunch. So for a particular, particularly exempt profession, you're still covered by the FLSA. And if the standard under the FLSA goes up, as it has done under this rule, you know, you're going to be covered by that standard, even if you're in an exemption to AB5. Think about it this way. Think about the minimum wage. Everybody understands, I think, the minimum wage in San Francisco is higher than a minimum wage in Biloxi, Mississippi. Right. Absolutely. It's whatever, 15, 16 dollars an hour, whatever it is in San Francisco. And it is the federal minimum wage. Presumably, I don't actually know that. But let's say it is the federal minimum wage is what the wage is in Mississippi. It's set, I think it's 725 or whatever. 725. Right. If the federal minimum wage goes up tomorrow to ten dollars an hour, the San Francisco minimum wage is still going to be 15 bucks. Right. But now those workers who were previously you know, only covered by the 725 minimum wage will now have that new floor. So the federal, the Fair Labor Standards Act just provides a floor and then states can go beyond that. But if a state has left a, has, has, uh, you know, regulated in a way where previously they were regulating at the FLSA floor, and then the Department of Labor raises that floor by raising the minimum wage, or in this case, increasing the scope of the FLSA, then uh, then those new then then it will go beyond it will seem like it's it's overriding the state but it's not it's it's just the floor is is rising as long as the floor rises the states can can't regulate uh they they can't ever exempt themselves from the flsa and the flsa can't override so you know trump for example couldn't have gotten rid of ab5 uh you know even if he had wanted to i don't know whether he did or not but even if he had wanted to he could not have gotten rid of ab5 so that's what when I say they can't override the state, I know that's confusing and I'm very so, sorry. Well, no, if I, if I heard it right though, so, so they're providing a floor, ABC test goes above that floor, but where some of the confusion and problems might lie is that there were a lot of carve outs in that yep. ABC. So therefore right. what value does that ABC have? We have to look into that. Right, right, right. So if you were previously carved out of the ABC, you're still carved out of the ABC, but now the department of labor is, raising the floor for everybody with their new test, which is more restrictive than their old test. So if you were carved out of AB5, the floor is going up. You're still, uh, you know, you're still covered by the FLSA. You're always going to be covered by the FLSA or rather all employees are covered by the FLSA. Whether you're an employee or not is the precise question at issue. Um, so that's yeah, the, 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 what I've taken away from all of this is it's going to be a nightmare of confusion. I think I think it already is a tangle and a nightmare, and 
the effort of the 2021 rule was to simplify this for a lot of workers and to say, like, here's a clear test. And by the way, usually if you are an employee or, you know, if you're an independent contractor under these various other statutes, you're going to be an independent contractor here, too. So it's an effort to kind of simplify. But that simplification has been taken away. And yes, I think they've created a whole lot of additional confusion and uh, without justification in our view. Well, um, did you all catch that? <laughs> you catch you know, all I, that? I remember, Wilson, <laughs> when the 2021 rule was put in place. I remember Sec Labor Secretary Scalia at the time. He wrote an op-ed and he said, we see what's happening in California. We're, we're, we're doing this to try and make sure that people are protected from the federal level, at least in some respects, whatever the federal level that he was very cognizant in that op-ed of, we see what's going on in these, in some of these States. And we're trying to do what we can to protect these independent countries. That's how I remember it. If I'm remembering. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the 2021 rule of course was in response to AB five to some degree, that's not to say that it overrode AB5 in any way. It wasn't about overriding AB5. It was about, I think, setting an example about here's a clear test. You know, the Fair Labor Standards Act is sort of the model for the vast majority of states and the way they do their employment law, and the way they do their minimum wage and overtime statutes. So they should model themselves off a clear test, which lets people understand what the rules are rather than this mess of an AB5, which makes it impossible to be classified as an independent contractor and has all of these various exemptions, which just make no sense and are just clearly ad hoc in response to particular political, uh, political pressures. So I think uh, having a clear one-size-fits-all test is, is an excellent example for the Department of Labor to have set in 2021, which is why it's so disappointing that here we are in 2024 and they've gone to this nebulous black box, which gives nobody any useful guidance whatsoever. So, so as a person who's a non-lawyer, am I correct to think the 2021 rule that was in place was written by people who thought AB5 was bad, which is the people I agree with, and the people doing this right now at the U.S. Department of Labor are the people who thought AB5 was great, and they're is that is that an accurate assessment of what's that's happening? A fair, that's a fair approximation. It's worth noting that the Department of Labor in its rule is, of course, it pains to say, well, this is not AB5. This is, uh, you know, we're a totality of the circumstances test, right? So they're, they're pains to distinguish themselves from AB5 for, I'm sure, political reasons. But it's clear if you look at the constituencies of the people who support the rule, uh, that it is a lot of the same constituencies that support AB5 and support similar AB5 statutes. I, I said it at the beginning. I think the Department of Labor's ultimate goal is to chill independent contracting relationships, to reduce the spread and the growth of that sector, and to turn more people into employees where they can. They're not. It's not a dramatic rule, right? It's not a rule which is going to make, uh, you know, which is going to have huge overnight impacts, in my view. But it is a rule which is going to ultimately hurt a lot of people who are running their own business and who want to run their own business because it's going to chill uh, the growth of their business. It's going to chill their customers from working with them. It's going to change the way they have to do business in order to remain their own boss and all of that, uh, you know, for what, right? And, and I don't think the Department of Labor has a good reason for what it's doing.
there. Um, well, I, I don't know how long we can keep you or if we've kept you way over the time we can. Or... <laughs> well, I have this in my calendar for half an hour. So we have gone a little over time, but I always enjoy talking about this. So thank you for, uh, for the chance to talk about, uh, talk about the case. Well, thank you for coming on and shedding some, I know that you shed the wisdom you could, but at the same time, I'm still just feeling a lot of who knows. I, we'll I, see. You, I wish I could get more. I <laughs> no, mean, you I, did. You, I think, I mean, there's no more to give. I encourage everyone to go to pacificlegal.org, you know, read our complaint, try and understand if you want to sort of understand what this case is, is about, uh, read what, what we've written about the case and, and hopefully, and what Kim is writing about it as well. And, uh, I mean, I, I think it's an important case. I think this is a really important rule just because I don't think it's going to have huge traumatic overnight effects. Doesn't mean I don't think it's hugely important. So, uh, please, please take a look at our, our lawsuit and our website. So thanks. And that lawsuit, Steve, it's only 17 pages long. And I can oh, tell I know. you, I, read, I, he's I, a good I, can writer. I know he's a right lawyer, now. but he's a good writer. You can read it. It's in English. You can follow it when you read it. It's really, it's very understandable compared to that monstrosity <laughs> that the labor department right. is fantastic. So read it, take the minute to read the 17 pages. Yeah. Don't read you the guys. I just, I just posted it in the chat. 30. So if you guys want, if you guys want to read it, it's right there. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Hey. So I'll log and you can, you can talk to Kim and uh, I'll We're grateful no, thank for you. you. Thank you for staying. Thank you for staying after Wilson and, and hanging out with us and talking us through. Some He's of doing this. this pro bono for all of us. So we're very grateful for the Pacific legal, legal foundation and Wilson in particular. Thank you. So That's make, what we, you guys make sure to check this out. And I love their Twitter headline, too. It says, we sue the government. <laughs> <laughs> what I, I just do. saw it today. I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Wilson. You. Appreciate you.